the truth found in the book of Ruth speaks to readers of every age. We see in a profound way theology put together with faith. If you will remember in James 2.17, the Bible says faith without works is dead. Dr. Daniel Block would add to that particular verse of Scripture the point that the book of Ruth paints a picture of lofty theology and inspiringly vibrant faith. So putting together faith without works is dead. We should not be afraid of good, robust theology. And we learn so much from the book of Ruth. Dr. Albert Moeller has said, in the end, the church will either declare the truth of God's word or we will find a way to run from it. I will not run from the truth of the word of God, and I hope that is true for you. So the book of Ruth, lofty theology and inspiringly vibrant faith. Today, in our study in the book of Ruth, we're going to see faith, a faith response to the providence of God. There are a couple of faith responses to it with Naomi and Ruth, uh, but for today we're going to look at Naomi's faith response. Just a little bit of background again on the book of Ruth to remind us of the glory of the themes that are found here. Uh, Dr. Daniel Block, in his wonderful commentary on Ruth in the New American Commentary, says that there are practical and theological lessons. Let me just remind you of five of those as we start in uh, to the meat of the book. One, God will not let his promises to Israel and to Judah and to David die. Second, God's work. God works in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform and his goals to achieve. Third, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. Four, Genuine piety is expressed primarily in devotion, a sensitivity, grace, and kindness toward others, and openness to the working of God. You see this in the book of Ruth so clearly. And number five, God's grace knows no boundaries. Even a despised Moabitess is incorporated into the nation of Israel. In fact, the royal line of the Messiah has Moabite blood in its veins. The greatest son of Boaz and Ruth, the Lord Jesus Christ, would rule over Jacob forever, and his reign knows no bounds. Well, we saw last week that God's dark and frowning providences form the actual background of the marvelous story of the book of Ruth. We, of course... All of us long for smiling providences. And you're going to see those in the book of Ruth when you get to chapter 3 and chapter 4. They will come to us in full light, the smiling face of God, when it comes to chapter 3 and 4 of the book of Ruth. Last week we gave one definition out of a catechism concerning providence. Let me give you another one. And it's article 13 of the Belgic Confession on providence. And this is what it reads. We believe that this good God 
after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. The providence of God. My question to you today is how does your faith respond to divine providence? Not fate, fortune, or chance, but how does your faith respond to divine providence? This section will address Naomi's response. To have an accurate view of providence, you must take into account how you respond to it. Because, in fact, it becomes a cold and sterile doctrine if you don't consider how your actual life responds to the providence of God. Because we believe, according to the Bible, that the providence of God covers every detail of our lives. Providence then becomes a faith issue. When your faith is dropped into the crucible of testing and it is heated through dark providence, how will your faith emerge? I want to remind you of the biblical principle in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. The Bible reads, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In our text today, we're going to see Naomi's faith tested and tried. We're going to see her faith more precious than gold resulting in the praise and glory to Jesus. Today we will see that Naomi's faith was far from a misguided or misled faith. Naomi's faith was real and honest. It has a strength. It has a beauty to it. There's no facade in her faith. There is no shallowness. There is no superficiality in her faith. Her faith is real and honest and transparent, and it comes to grips at every moment with the providence of God. Listen to the word of the Lord. Let's walk through the text down through verse 21 by reading certain verses at a time and then commenting on them. But the main point today is even in a crisis, honest faith acknowledges the providence of God. Listen to the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 6. Then... She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. We find several aspects of Naomi's faith that we can observe in this passage, regarding honest faith, acknowledging the providence of God. First, honest faith does not forget the goodness of God. Notice clearly from verses 6 and 7, uh, this statement that God has visited his people is not something that should be taken as a minor detail. This is very important. It's pivotal for, pivotal for how Naomi will respond during the dark days of the providence of God, like a cloud over her life, this statement, the Lord has visited his people, becomes so important. She knows then that God is good. He has visited his people amidst the famine 
by giving them bread. This visitation actually should be seen as a picture of divine grace. Daniel Block once again points it out. It was a gift from God in the midst of Naomi's grief and pain. She was able to hear good news. It was actually the grace of God manifested. God has intervened on behalf of his people. The word visited means to intervene on behalf of, to come to the aid of. And the use of his people expresses that covenantal relationship between deity and people. This is the Lord God coming to visit his people. And the good news to Naomi was God had not forgotten his people. God had not rejected his people. Yahweh had given his people bread. And if you know anything about the Hebrew, Bethlehem means house of bread. And there's a play on words. The Lord has basically restocked the house of bread. That is good news to Naomi. And although he works among his people in Kesed, or Hesed, you would see in English, H-E-S-E-D, loving kindness. And although he works among his people in that way, don't forget the providential working behind the scenes that the Lord God in all of this situation is guiding the natural and historical events for the fulfillment of a purpose uh, on the stage of life and the ultimate emergence of David's ancestor. That's, that's where we're headed. But Naomi's response is decisive. With her daughters-in-law, the Bible says she arose. The Bible says that she returned somehow through some source out in the field of Moab. She gets the news that God has visited his people. She did not forget the message of the word of the goodness of God. How does Naomi respond to the goodness of God? If you had lost a husband and two sons, what would be your response to the situation that you're in in your life? She does not say, I don't want to hear about God. He took my husband and he took my two sons. I want nothing to do with a God like that. That's not her response. In our day, there seems to be a popular expression of how we're supposed to be angry with God and to say things to him in that regard. It seems to be fashionable. It seems to be woke, to be sorely disappointed with God. I'm angry with him for what he's done to me or what he has allowed to take place in my life. You know, in the United States of America, this kind of book, this kind of talk among Christendom can sell books in the U.S. But Naomi at no point doubts the goodness of God. In order for you to see the theology of Ruth, you have to see this. There is a deep-rooted biblical faith that does not give up hope in the goodness of God, no matter how bad it gets. When your faith is rooted in the Lord, no matter how bad it gets, you don't forget the goodness of God. This is why it is so important for the members of FBCO and anyone that's a believer that's listening to this sermon, for you to be saturated and absorbed in the Word of God concerning what the Bible says about the goodness of God. When the difficulties of life come your way and when the dark providences of God enter into your life, the tempter will come to you and he will whisper in your ear that God is really not good. You know this has happened to you. You know it. If God is good, right, 
then uh, how, would, how could he allow you to lose your job during the COVID-19 pandemic? If God is good, then your spouse would not have walked out on you. If God is good, then your child would not have rebelled. The enemy will say to us, see, I told you that God was just a mean old kill joy. When the words from the tempter come, you need to be able to pull out the sword of the Spirit and do battle against the enemy. Zephaniah 3.17, don't you love this verse? The Lord your God is in your midst. He is the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You need to be able to be saturated in such a way that Romans 8.28 comes to the forefront of your mind. And we know that all things work for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Psalm 119 verse 68 is a verse that spoke so clearly to my life when I lost my father and how difficult that was in my own life. And also, if you remember here at FBCO, we had Dwight Eastler come and speak. And if you've read his book that he and Tabitha wrote, this is a verse of scripture that spoke directly to her heart when she lost her son. Listen to the word of the Lord, Psalm 119, verse 68. Check it out. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. We see from Naomi that she never denied, never shied away from the goodness of God, even in the midst of, of tragedy after tragedy. Honest faith does not forget the goodness of God. And if you're going through a dark and frowning providence, don't buy into the lie of the enemy. You must hold up forward the revealed truth of God's word that God is good. So Naomi arose and left Judah. And in verses 8 through, 8 through 13, we see that Naomi's honest faith considers others and is not self-absorbed. Beginning in verse, tail end of verse 7, listen. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return, double command, go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Better translation, they wailed loudly. And they said to her, No, we will return with you and to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even after I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown or were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Honest faith considers others, and is not self-absorbed. In verse 7, 
there is first the use of the singular. So she set out. And I think the narrator, the writer of the book of Ruth, wants you to focus on Naomi. The attention should be toward Naomi. She's intending to leave Moab, and that word return is vitally important. It is key. It's the word that the narrator wants to drive into your mind, that she is returning to Bethlehem. Yet, as she leaves, at the end of verse 7, you'll notice that her two daughters-in-law are with her. We, we observe a trio of women headed back on the road to Judah. Again, by combining a firmness, but yet a tenderness, she gives a double command to the girls. Go and return. Now, did you know that customarily in the Bible, when you refer to a home, and you know this, it's referred to as the father's house. But here, Ruth speaks in terms of going back to the home of their mother. The command automatically should bring forth thoughts in your mind that it has overtones of marriage. She's sending them back for that. A mother's chamber is actually mentioned in the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, in chapter 3, 4, and chapter 8, verse 2. And it was a place where marriages were arranged and then in the mother's chamber consummated. So in essence, she was saying to those daughters, go back, return back to your people, put yourself in a position where a marriage can be arranged and it can be consummated for you, and there you can have children. So Naomi, watch the next part. She moves from that to begin to pray for her daughters-in-law. Isn't this incredible? And the word first that she says regarding the Lord, look, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord. If you're a student of the word, you will notice that Lord is in all caps. And it's for a reason, because that is the personal name of God. It is Yahweh God. It is the covenant-keeping God. So Naomi's prayer begins by using the name, the covenantal name of God. The word, again, Yahweh in his covenant relationship. She doesn't say, may Elohim bless you. She prays, may the covenant God show you chesed, or hesed, loyal kindness and love. It means covenantal, loyal love. So she prays for her daughters-in-law in the realm of covenantal blessings from her covenant Lord to bless and to show loyal love to these pagan girls. This is awesome. It's awesome because she assumes that the authority of God, the God of Israel, the covenant-keeping God, extends beyond the nation's borders to even foreign territory. It's amazing. She trusts them. She entrusts them to the kind and tender care and provision of the covenant-keeping God. She literally prays, prays that God will give them a resting place. And you probably have heard this before. In Psalm 23, 2, it says, He leads me beside still waters. The real translation is resting place waters. So here she is praying to the Lord God that God would give these two girls a resting place of renewal in the midst of insurmountable grief that they've gone through in losing their husbands. She concludes 
by asking God to give them a home and to give them a husband. And as a text, you've you got to get the picture and see this. As she says this, the Bible says that they kissed their mother-in-law and they wept bitterly. They wept. They wailed because of it. And I think this speaks in great detail to the kind of woman Naomi was, something about her character, the fact that she lived in such a way that she wasn't consumed by her grief. But again, as the point says, she considers others and she is not self-absorbed. Think about the scene. Again, the word used here for weeping connotes loud and bitter wailing. Um, This is the same word that is used uh, when Hannah weeps bitterly before the Lord because of her barrenness. So the text tells us that both daughters-in-law, their case, they state their case before Naomi that they're not going to leave. But in 11 through 13, what does Naomi do? She insists that they return. Naomi refers to them again affectionately as her daughters. And that speaks volumes again to the kind of lady that she was and the kind of relationship that they have had. Now, I don't want you to miss this. The, the affection certainly is mutually shared. Naomi is initiating the separation, not the two girls. Notice that's important. And listen to her arguments given to us in the text. Are there sons in my womb? What, if you stay with me, what do I have to offer you? Do I have sons in my womb that can become your husbands? She is no doubt referring to Leveret law in Deuteronomy. You will be familiar with that. What does it say? Well, the brother or the next of kin is to take the widow as his wife in order to raise up sons and to perpetuate the name of the deceased husband and brother. And there is no way that I can give you husbands from my womb. And if I had a husband tonight, meaning, and I conceived tonight, would you really wait around for that many years until they were at marrying age? And then she says, leave, because life for me is more bitter, uh, or she says it this way, life for me is more bitter than it is for you. I think Naomi is being a realist. I think you see absolute honest faith before a sovereign God. She knows if they go with her, and they're, they're going to be foreigners in a foreign land, just like Naomi was in Moab. If they go back to Judah, they're going to become the foreigners in a foreign land. And what is the possibility of them being able to marry in Judah as foreigners? In her mind, she's probably thinking slim at best. She assumes that it's outside the realm of possibility. She then reminds them, she reminds them, you do not want to go with me. You still have hope for a husband. You still have hope for a family. My life is more bitter than yours. And then she unashamedly says, the hand of Yahweh has stretched out against me. Think about this. Here we have deep-rooted, honest faith that shuns self-pity. In the midst of it, she remains mindful of the needs of others. She's mindful of their spiritual needs, and she's mindful of their physical needs. I have to think about my own life in this regard. Would I think like this? 
Would you think like this? How would your faith respond when the arm of the Lord has stretched out against you? That's her theology and a right, correct theology. And this is her faith response. She's thinking of others more than herself. Uh, their, Their welfare, the two girls, their welfare was first. How often through dark days do we drag people down when we go through difficulty? We often use people uh, to lessen our pain. She prays for their needs. Just think of this. And she gives good counsel even in dark times. What a woman of faith. There is, in my opinion, a virtue in Naomi that I think was present in the Son of God. Or let's say this, it was present first in the Son of God, and thus it is in Naomi's life. But you will remember that our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, hung suspended between heaven and earth on a Roman cross under the darkest and most frowning of all providence to ever come into human history and was able to say as he was nailed to the cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. As he hung there as well, dying through asphyxiation, he has enough breath available by pushing up to say to his mother standing there on that day, to John, behold your mother, and to her, behold your son. So here is Jesus in the darkest frowning providence ever known to mankind, being willing to take care of his mother, And check this out, and to remember rotten, depraved, and sinful Roman soldiers. It was once said, God would have more friends if he treated the ones he had a little better. Let that rest upon your mind, because this is the way that the world thinks. This is their mentality. Well, let me suggest to you that God would have a better reputation today if the friends that he has bore up more under the frowning providence with a little less self-pity and selfishness and thought about the needs of others even when you're going through difficult days. That is real, honest truth that is rooted in the providential work of God. We should recognize that others are watching. We should recognize that other people are in need. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Listen, in order that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We will address verses 14 through 18 Next week, but listen to it. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your, your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Next week, we're going to talk about that determined faith. 
in response to the providence of God. But for our sake today, I just want you to note that there has to be something winsome and attractive and beautiful about Naomi's faith for Ruth and, better yet, even for Orpah to have this type of desire to... It was more than just the fact that it was her mother, their mother-in-law. I'm telling you, there's something winsome and attractive about her faith. There's something special about her character and her faith that causes the daughters-in-law. Let me just give you a quick rundown. Look, Ruth didn't see the best of times. She saw frowning providences, yet she desired Naomi's God. Let that stick into your mind before we get into next week. Here's a woman who's not hearing from Naomi, it's your best life now. Here is a woman who sees everything going on firsthand in Naomi's life, and she still desires Naomi's God. What an amazing thing. The Bible tells us that Orpah leaves. Uh, it's kind of hilarious that some uh, give her a bad rap, and, and maybe justifiably so. Rabbis believe that it was a really, really horrible thing, and I heard one preacher even say that they believe that she actually became Goliath's grandmother. Now, I don't know about all that, but the fact is Orpah, in my opinion, simply does what her mother-in-law commands her to do. You go back. And, of course, when we look into it next week, the fact that she went back to her gods is certainly not a good thing because they're unable to save. But there was something about Naomi's faith that pulled these girls in. So first, honest faith in the Lord does not forget the goodness of God. Honest faith considers others and is not self-absorbed. And finally, honest faith does not shrink back from hard providences. Listen to verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. I'm just going to tell you, like in the South, it'd be like this. All the women down at the hair salon are talking. They know that Naomi's back in town, and it's the gossip. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty, Shaddai, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Pleasant. When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning, another great ray of hope at the beginning of barley harvest. So let's look at this last point. Honest faith does not shrink back from hard providences. Now it's tempting to be critical toward Naomi's words here, right? Some even surmise that her faith was shaken and her faith was misguided. I beg to differ. Naomi, of course, creates a stir as she returns. Again, the ladies down at the beauty shop, they're gossiping at this point. Is this Naomi? Now, folks, why would they say this? Is this Naomi? Well, number one, it's been a long time. And our imaginations can go in different ways, but she went out with a measure of wealth. She went out full. She came... She came back empty. She left with a husband and two sons. She comes back with a single daughter-in-law. Her name means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant anymore, but call me bitter. Gloomy Gus. Call me bitter. Notice in verses 20 and 21, she does something that we rarely ever do in our 
day. I made the statement last week that we like to exonerate God from any situation in life. However, she doesn't do that. She acknowledges the hand of God in her life. The Lord Almighty, Shaddai, has dealt very bitterly with me. This reminds me of Job chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. If you have your copy of God's Word in front of you, it would be really good for you to lay your eyes on this one. Chapter 2 of the book of Job. You know this story. Job has uh, gone through uh, immense suffering. You know that the Lord God himself allowed this suffering in Job's life. And we find here that Job is going to have a conversation with his lovely wife. She is, of course, an Ephesians 5 kind of wife. No, not at all. Not in this text. Listen to what the word says. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Now think about this now. This is the wife that God had given him. This is his helpmeet. This is the one that is his side-by-side companion. And she says, just curse God and drop dead. This is her advice to her husband. Now think about this guy. He's lost. He's filled with boils at this point. He's lost his children. He's lost his income. He's lost everything he's got. And here's what his wife says to him. In my opinion, his biggest trial very well could have been his wife. No pun intended. That's just a fact of the matter. And I hope and pray that somewhere down the line, she repented. But notice what Job says. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And here is how she, he is so much like Naomi. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Think about this. His other part that's cleaving to him in marriage says, Curse God and drop dead. And Job says, This you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And he says, Shall we not receive good from God and also receive evil? And all that Job did, he did not sin with his lips. And all the tragedy that Job had in his life, he did not sin with his lips. Here's Naomi. She's returning to Bethlehem. She's destitute. She's impoverished. And she's looking much, much older than she did when she left the first time. But this is honest faith and realism. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Bitterness. Why? The hand of Shaddai has gone out against me. You know, honest faith doesn't try to wiggle a way out of things. Job doesn't try to do this. A Job-like Naomi-like faith knows that we've received good things from the Lord and his hand, but we also may receive one calamity after another. Naomi's broken. Naomi is injured, and she's filled with pain. I don't feel pleasant anymore. I feel bitter. The faith is not seen, ladies and gentlemen, in how she feels. Her faith is seen in how she ascribes it to the Lord's hand. There's the honest, rooted faith in God. Note this. Yahweh, my covenant-keeping God, the one who promises faithfulness to thousands of generations, has testified against me and afflicted me, right? 
She even refers to him as the covenant-keeping God who's afflicted her. But before that, she pictures the Lord God as Shaddai. Shaddai has reached forth his hand. What do you know about that word? One little small commentary reminds us of at least three pictures. When she called him the Almighty, Shaddai, here are three pictures you need to think about. First, it pictures God as a powerful God who can transform someone's helplessness into hopelessness. Hopefulness. Isn't that awesome? Helplessness into hopefulness, into blessing. It also pictures the powerful God who protects his people at the times of uncertainty. Anybody know anything about uncertainty at this moment? It is the Lord God himself that has the power in our times to do whatever it takes to help his people in times of uncertainty. Finally, it pictures the powerful God in whose hand all things belong, both blessing and calamity. So in Naomi's mind, when she calls him that title, she has to have in her mind the Almighty is the very one who can give both blessing and the God who can give calamity. And doing it all without sin and all for his glory. One writer says, Shaddai is God at his best when man is at his worst. And that is so true. Naomi could leave the explanation for the frowning providence of God and the responsibility for her bitterness at the feet of Shaddai. Naomi is so much like Job, realistically acknowledging how God dealt with her. It was Job, if you've read the book of Job, who says, The Almighty has shot his arrows through me, and they are filled with poison. It was Job who said, It is the pressure of God on me that is absolutely crushing me. Folks, I don't know what you call this, but I don't call this shallow faith. It's the kind of faith that honors God more than the superficial faith that characterizes our present church age. What kind of faith can endure the crucible of testing? Would your faith, would you be able to stand if your faith was dropped into the crucible of a dark and frowning providence? Something you have to think about. I think the best answer for me about that, will I survive? If the Almighty God would see fit to sustain my faith, then I would endure. That has to be a, a realistic, honest faith answer. The kind of faith that says God owes me a wonderful life will not sustain you when you are dropped into the crucible of testing and the frowning providence of God upon your life. When the dark providences come into you, you're going to think you've got ripped off buying that best-selling book. It's not going to help you in that moment when you're in that kind of providence. As a matter of fact, Naomi's faith was not that kind that said, if God really loved me, then he would not have done this. Her faith was not a gospel of self-esteem. Try preaching a gospel of self-esteem to Job and Naomi. Just try that for a moment when you read the books. The only faith that endures the crucible of testing is the faith that knows that Shaddai is behind the frowning providence and he always hides a smiling face. This is the kind of faith that honors Almighty God. One of the greatest theologians that ever lived was Jonathan Edwards. And I would encourage our church family to pick up any and everything you can find that Jonathan Edwards ever wrote. It will do your heart good. He was born on October 5, 1701 in East Windsor, Connecticut, and he was no doubt the greatest theologian and philosopher 
Putting those two things together is amazing. Theologian and philosopher of the British American Puritanism. Uh, Most scholars you read about will tell you that he was the stimulator of the religious revival known as the Great Awakening. He was also one of the forerunners of the Protestant expansion in the 19th century. This young boy went to college when he was 13. He went to Yale when he was 13 years old. He stuck around enough years not only to do one degree but also to do divinity school. Had an incredible mind. He never studied without a pen in his hand. As a matter of fact, he refuted materialism and atheism and showed the rational thought of Christianity in terms of contemporary philosophy when he was a teenager. It was amazing the kind of mind that he had. Later on in life, he followed his father at Northampton Church and became the pastor. His his father was Timothy, and he becomes the pastor of Northampton, in 1729. And he actually served as their pastor for 22 years. I can't emphasize enough to you how profound this man's theology was. So saturated with the Word of God. And it was there, after 22 years, that an issue of the Lord's Supper came up. And Jonathan Edwards believed that Christians who knew Jesus should be the ones who partake of the Lord's Supper. And after 22 years uh, of a church where he actually preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, this church family, some of them rose up and ran him out of town because of a biblical view of the Lord's Supper. He left under immense burden, to stricken, knocked down, frowning dark providence in his life, and he w- decided to go among the Stockbridge area of, of the Indian tribe there and minister them. He went there to pastor, and as the providence of God would have it, he wrote most of his incredible works while he was working among these Indians. But when he was 55 years of age, they came to him and wanted him to be the president of what is now Princeton University. And he served maybe a couple of weeks and decided to take a smallpox vaccination, and that inoculation actually took his life when he was 55 years of age. When his family, many of them were gathered at his side at his death, his lovely wife, Miss Sarah Edwards, was grieving. And he looks up, gasping for air with nodules in his throat, and said, Trust in God, and you need not fear. Sarah Edwards would write, a letter to her daughter Esther at the death of Esther's father and Sarah's husband. And this is one of the most incredible short letters that I've ever read of someone who has honest faith and believes that God controls all things. Just listen to it. And I quote, My very dear child, this is her writing to Esther, her daughter, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness. Let that grip you, folks. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy 
my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God. And there I am and I love to be. Your ever affectionate mother, affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. Some 100 years later, give or take a few, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, Charles Spurgeon, would say, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. We learn to kiss the wave because Christ is near to us and he is supreme over all things. When there's nothing in heaven or earth, according to Romans 8, that can separate us from the love of Christ, then waves and trials can only throw us on to the rock of ages. Resting in the rock of ages is the best place we could ever be. To God be the glory. Providence and honest faith. Let us pray. Great God, we're just consumed by you. Lord, we need correct language about you. We need a correct view of you. Lord, we just bow before your supremacy and the fact that you do rule this world, that you are providentially in control of all things. When we look at our lives, Lord, it's a mystery how that you bring certain calamity into our lives, but Lord, we know the end result. It is that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, help us to trust in an all-wise God, that you control all things and know all things and perform your work. Lord, help us when we walk through difficulty not to be self-absorbed. Help us not to drown in self-pity. God, give us eyes to faith to see that there are others around us in need. There are others watching Lord, your reputation and your glory is most important. And we fall back on 1 Peter 1.7. That the genuineness of our faith, being much more precious than gold, though it be tried by fire, may be found to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ at his appearing. To God be the glory. Father, may you draw hearts to you and may you redeem souls. May you turn on the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ within hearts. You are mighty to save, and we bow before you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.